Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And the reason that that image is behind me on the screen, some of you might know what that is, um, but I'll take a moment to explain it to you. But the reason is, is because this is the way I have been approaching uh, the study in the Psalms is you notice in your notes today, it is a ton of Scripture from all over the place. And the fact of the matter is, is that is a picture of the Bible. That is a picture of the Bible. The little white lines on the bottom are chapters in the Bible. And so uh, the one in the middle, I think, is Psalm 119, the one that's really long, that reaches all the way down to the bottom. But all those little white lines are chapters in the Bible, and all of the colored lines is every time the Bible refers to itself. So that is a, an image representation of all the cross-references in Scripture. And what do you see? That Scripture is a web woven together. That it constantly and continually and miraculously refers back to itself all the time. Which is why... Any preacher worth his salt will say that Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. Because as a matter of fact, Scripture commentates, or commentates, I just made up a word. What is that word? Scripture comments on Scripture all the time, constantly. So if you want to know what God means in a certain passage, look for the other passage where God mentions it there. And so that is a representation of every time the Bible refers to itself. And from the beginning... All the way to the end, the Bible is constantly uh, referring back to itself. Oh, that's miraculous. Only, only the God-breathed, inspired Word of God could accomplish such a thing. You know, 66 books, 40 different authors, and yet you have a, a work, a book, a word that is that intertwined. That's absolutely impossible, but uh, by inspiration of God. So I wanted to show you that in preparation for having a lot of cross-references in Psalm 8. So why in the world does Pastor Will spend so much time in other passages? Well, because there's a lot to be found in every passage of Scripture. And so I think oftentimes we take, you know, we uh, quote Scripture and things like that all the time, and it gets kind of segmented in our minds. But really, all of Scripture is woven together. It's this great big tapestry of truth. Uh, and so I wanted to show you that uh, as we get into Psalm 8 this morning. Psalm 8, you can see there in your Bible, before verse 1, is a little title. It says, To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of David. In researching what that means, that title, which is there in the Hebrew, uh, Spurgeon says, We're not clear upon the meaning of the word Gittith. Some think it refers to Gath and may refer to a tune commonly sung in Gath or an instrument of music invented in Gath or a song of Obededom, the Gittite, in whose house the ark rested or better still, a song, a song sung over Goliath of Gath. Others, tracing the Hebrew to its root, conceive it to mean a song for the winepress, a joyful hymn for the treaders of grapes. <laughs> It's something you sing when you're treading on grapes, I guess. The term Giddeth is applied to two other psalms, Psalm 80, 81 and 84, both of which being a jo of a joyous character. It may be concluded that where we find the word, we may look for a hymn of delight. 
Another commentator pointed out that Psalm 8 is a nature psalm, such as Psalm 19, 29, 66, and 104, but it's also a messianic psalm. It refers to the Savior. So it's a psalm of nature, but it also talks of Jesus Christ. So let's read Psalm 8 together, and then we'll get into our study of it. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hath set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Psalm 8, there are three concepts that we'll look at this afternoon. First of all, we see that Psalm 8 talks about how we are created. That's your first blank there in your notes, created. And particularly in verses 1 and 2 and verse 5, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and avenger. Verse 5 says, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. We are created as human beings. We are created by a personal and powerful God. This stands out to me in the Psalms. I, I love this aspect of the Psalms. Do you see how it says, O Lord, our Lord? He's a personal God. He's our Lord. He's the, the God. He's the powerful God, the Lord, but He's also our Lord. Do you realize just how incredible the God of the Bible really is. One of my favorite passages on just the sheer might and glory and wonder of God is Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 says in verse 10, Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm." And carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge? and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness? Will you compare unto him? The God of the Bible is above all gods. He's incomparable. There's nothing 
that is like him. The God of all the universe upholds all things by the word of his power. He measures the entire universe with a span. This is a span. Between your thumb and your pinky finger is a span. And God can take, obviously God is a spirit, but God can take and measure the universe with a span. By the way, the universe keeps getting bigger. You ever notice that? Every time they get a new telescope, it's way bigger than we thought it was. And God measures all of it with a span. Not only that, he can hold all the waters of the earth by cupping his palm. There are 326 million trillion gallons on this planet. That's 326 with 18 zeros behind it. Can't even comprehend that number. But God can cup it all in his hand. That's how big our God is. And all of this in Isaiah 40 is not the limitations of God. It's just trying to give us a glimpse at just how incredibly magnificent and wondrous God is. All the nations before him are as nothing. They're less than nothing. You watch any kind of you know, science fiction thing where there's this great threat over the planet. All the nations get together. They come up with this great weapon and then they defeat the threat, right? There, there's not going to be any, you know, in Revelation, all the nations of the earth gather together against Christ. And with one word, he wipes them all out. They're nothing to him. They're a drop in a bucket. They're less than nothing. That's how incredibly powerful our God is. Lebanon was known for its forests, for its trees, and all of Lebanon's not sufficient to burn for his, to satisfy him. I love the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the three Hebrew children. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a proper understanding of God and who he is. And Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbuck, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if, it, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the God that's going to deliver you from me? Our God is able to deliver us, and he did. Think about Moses before Pharaoh. Exodus 5, Moses went in with Aaron and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord. Neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. 
God made Pharaoh acquainted with him. He used Pharaoh to show his power and might. God who? Pharaoh says, I don't know that God. Moses' reply was, our God. He's our God. He's a personal God. He's a powerful God. He's our God. Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The God that created the universe with the word of his mouth, who can measure said universe by spreading his fingers apart, who can hold all the waters in his palm, who is not at all threatened by all the nations of the world, is for us. He's our God. He's a personal God and a powerful God. He's also a praiseworthy God. He's a praiseworthy God. It says in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Praise is something that even a child can do. Even an infant can participate in praise. One author wrote, He who delights in the songs of angels is pleased to honor himself in the eyes of his enemies by the praises of little children. What a contrast between the glory above the heavens and the mouth of babes and sucklings, yet by both the name of God is made excellent. The heavens declare, the heavens praise the Lord as His name is excellent. His glory is above the heavens. But even children, babies, can praise the Lord. Matthew 21, verses 15 through 17, Jesus is being confronted by the chief priests. It says, When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Children, babies can praise the Lord. One commentator wrote that words are only sounds plus breath, two very weak things. Yet words of praise, even from sucklings, those not yet weaned, and babes, children that are able to play in the streets, can defeat God's enemies. The cry of baby Moses brought Egypt to her knees. The birth of Samuel was used by God to save Israel and bring David to the throne. It was the birth of Jesus that brought salvation to this world. Indeed, God has used the weak and helpless to praise him and defeat his enemies. How incredible it is that we serve a God who is powerful, who has all the power in the universe, and yet he uses the weak things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. 
He's a powerful and personal and praiseworthy God who has chosen the weak things of this world to glorify himself. Even babies can bring praise to the Father. And in the grandness of creation, man seems pretty insignificant. But in the eyes of a personal, powerful, and praiseworthy God, man serves a very special purpose. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 through 14. I love the end of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity, all is vanity, and then at the end. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The point is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Micah 6, 8 says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. He's given us a very special purpose to walk with him, to know him, to love mercy, to serve him and to fear him. God created us. And then we also see that the same God that created is the God that cared for us. Verses 3 through 4 says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? The psalmist is feeling kind of insignificant. I know the stars at night are big and bright in Texas. I think that in our modern age, with all the light pollution and everything, we, we, very, we glimpse very little of the majesty of God's creation. The psalmist didn't have any of that. He didn't have, you know, the lights glowing all around him at all hours of the day. At night, he looked up and he saw stars. He saw the Milky Way. He saw just the endlessness of it. And he felt insignificant. What is man? There's an emphasis there on the weakness of man. What is the son of man, the son of the earth, the earth-born individual. This is emphasizing the weakness and frailty of mankind. And in comparison with the vastness of creation, you look up and you realize just how much there is out there and how massive and huge and seemingly infinite God's creation is. What are we? We're just a drop in the cosmos. A long look into the stars and all of the ingenuity of the Creator causes anyone to wonder why a God that powerful and incomprehensible would care so much about a people that are so flawed. You think about it. He created all of those galaxies and all of those. You spend any time at all studying astronomy, how magnificent his creation is, and yet he looks and cares about us. It seems beneath him. And the psalmist is feeling insignificant. And then he talks about the Father's involvement. He says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? That word mindful means to remember, as in to meet a need. For example, in Genesis 8, verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. At the end of the flood there, God remembers Noah. He's mindful of Noah, and he dries up the waters. Genesis 30, verse 22, God remembered Rachel 
And God hearkened to her and opened her womb. He gave her a child. Uh, Exodus 2 says, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and gave, or, and God had respect unto them. God remembered them. He was mindful of them. Uh, he intervened to meet their need. And then the other word it uses is visitest them. What is man that thou was mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. That means observes or pays attention to. God, the God of all the universe who created everything there is pays attention to us. He observes us. Job 10 verse 12 says, Thou hast granted me life and favor, and thy visitation hath preserved my spirit. Exodus 4 verse 31 says, The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. They realized that their God had paid attention to them. He knew what they were going through. He, had, he saw their need. It, it, he made their concern his concern. He visited them. 1 Peter 5 verses 6 through 7 tells us this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. He pays attention to us. He knows what we're going through. He understands and he sees and he observes. He's not caught by surprise. It's not beneath him to look on us. What is God, what is man and the son of man that you even observe us? Surely you've got something better to do than to pay attention to my life or to care about my problems. And yet God visiteth us. He's mindful of us. He created us. He cares for us. And then notice verses 5 through 8. Crowned. Crowned. Look at what it says. For thou hast made him, man, a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. He crowned man in creation. In creation. Notice what it says. Thou hast made him, man, a little lower than the angels. That's different than what science claims. Science believes that man is a little higher than the animals. But God says that man is actually a little lower than the angels. There's a big difference in that. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. At the beginning, man had total dominion over all of creation. Much of that was lost as a result of the fall. Sin now has cursed this planet, has spoiled that creation. 
But notice he's crowned us in creation. Notice he's crowned in Christ. This is where the messianic part of it comes in. Man lost total dominion over creation, but Christ wielded it. Even in his ministry, and when he walked this earth for 33 years, he wielded total dominion over the beast of the wilderness, over the fish of the sea. I love how Jesus introduced himself to Peter. Lord, we fished all night. We've caught nothing. But because you say so, I'll let down the net. And they couldn't even pull it back in the boat. I wish Christ would do for me what he did for the disciples. Cast your pole on the other side. <laughs> and Christ made the fish jump in the net. You know, they had again fished all night. And Christ wielded complete dominion over the fish in the sea. Think about this. Who made the rooster crow on the night Jesus was condemned? Jesus said, before the cock crows thrice, you shall deny me. And it did. It crowed three times, right on time. Who made that rooster crow? How in the world was he able to sit on the back of an unbroken colt and ride all the way into Jerusalem? Have you ever encountered a donkey? They are not willing animals. And Christ sat on the back of an unbroken colt. Complete dominion over all creation. Matthew 28 says, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. In the book of Hebrews, who is, whose theme is the superiority of Christ, in Hebrews chapter 2, you find this psalm quoted to illustrate that Christ has regained all that man lost in the fall and that one day when we see him face to face, we'll reign with him. Hebrews 2 says, but we see Jesus, verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him who... Whom, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It quotes Psalm 8 in Christ there in Hebrews 2. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One of these days, We'll see him face to face, and then all that Christ has purchased for us will be ours again. Do you realize that because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, that the new heaven and earth will actually be superior to Eden? We'll be like him. We'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. We'll have more than we've ever had in all creation because of what Christ has done for us. In 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. There's a kingdom coming. And because we are in Christ, adopted into the family of God, we have a part in that kingdom. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. He's made us kings. He's made us priests. He's made us uh, adult sons in God's family. We're joint heirs with Christ in the inheritance that he has purchased for us. Christ regained all that we lost in the fall and more. We are joint heirs with Christ. You know, there's only one conclusion that you can come to when you study who God is, what He has done, what He is like. He's the Creator. He cares for you. And as His child in Christ, He has crowned you. There's only one conclusion you can come to, and that's verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. 1 Peter 1 says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith into salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. One of these days, we'll have that perfect, incorruptible, permanent, eternal inheritance. We have eternal life right now, but one of these days we'll be like Him, where we shall see Him as He is. I don't know what that's going to be like. Right now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see him face to face. What is, God, what is man that God is mindful of us? Attentive to us. Not only that, he purchased salvation for us. That we might, as his children in Christ, reign with him for all eternity. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Father, we thank you for your word and just what well, we can't even begin to comprehend the greatness of our God. Are we thankful that you are mindful of us? Many of us here today have needs, things that are weighing heavy on our hearts and minds. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that aren't able to be with us today because they're going through difficult things. God, that you would help us to cast all of our burdens and our cares upon you. We thank you that you are mindful of us. We pray, Father, that you would comfort your people, strengthen us, help us to rest in the greatness of our God. Like the, Nebuch like the three Hebrew children, Lord, that refused to bow down. We thank you that you're a personal God, that you love us and you care for us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be pleasing to you and bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.